This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Dwayne Wade fidgeted behind the curtain. He inhaled slowly, attempting to quell the butterflies in his stomach. He didn't have stage fright. He had, after all, delivered clutch shots in front of thousands of feverish fans and addressed massive crowds with ease during his Hall of Fame career. But this was different. As he walked onto the Microsoft Theater stage in Los Angeles and positioned himself besides LeBron James, Chris Paul, and Carmelo Anthony, all of them purposefully dressed in black suits, Wade acknowledged the magnitude of the moment. These heavyweight stars, as tight as brothers since middle school, were about to implore athletes to use their influence and fame to try to heal a country roiling from racial injustice police brutality, and gun violence. And they were going to do this on live television. Wade knew they only had one shot at setting the perfect tone. We were nervous, not because we haven't been in front of uh, a lot of people before, but because we wanted to make sure that this message came across the way that it needed to, that we hit the importance of, as athletes, what's our role and what's our job. It was 2016, following a series of shootings, first in Baton Rouge in Minnesota, and then after five police officers were ambushed in Dallas. Mello called upon athletes to stop obsessing over their image and to do something. Take charge. Take action. Demand change, he wrote on social media. He included a photo of the Cleveland Summit, the iconic meeting among Black leaders in the 60s, including Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Anthony's post sparked immediate dialogue among the four friends. They had met on the AAU circuit as boys and remained close as men. They even vacationed together, leading to the infamous photo of LeBron, CP3, D. Wade, and his wife, Gabrielle Union, riding an inflatable banana. The internet went, well, bananas, and the four players were dubbed the Banana Boat Crew, even though Mello had arrived late and missed the entire excursion. At the time of their appearance to open the ESPYs, Mello played for the Knicks, D. Wade was a free agent about to sign with the Bulls, CP3 was with the Clippers, and LeBron was with the Cavs. Their friendship superseded their loyalties to their respective teams, an allegiance many of their old-school predecessors could not comprehend. They didn't care. And now here they were, pooling their collective star power for something other than basketball. Network producers fussed on stage, adjusting the lighting, directing the players to specific spots, while makeup artists trailed them with brushes, attempting to powder their noses. Suddenly, LeBron announced, Hey, everybody, apologies, but I need you all to get out. The four friends needed a minute. As Wade tells it, they talked among themselves about how this pivotal moment should go. How are we going to do it? Are we going to take a step forward? Are we going to stand in line? How are we going to stand? Who's speaking first? Because for us, the imagery was going to be as important as the words. 
because it wasn't just about you know what was going on then it's about what's going on now and what's going on in the future Their entrance was solemn, forceful. The audience hushed as the four black men lined up side by side, hands clasped in front. Paul peered into the bright spotlights bearing down on each of them. We didn't know how it'd be received, but it was that point. Like, no, like we all are parents and you stand for something or you fall for anything. And if there are backlashes behind this, then so be it. Byron Scott sat in the crowd, transfixed. He couldn't help but think of his Laker teammate, Kareem, whose efforts on behalf of Black lives were often derided and dismissed. Obviously, there are always somebody before you that kind of lays the groundwork to allow you to be able to do things that they weren't able to do. And when you saw those guys up there, you know, that groundwork was set 20 plus years ago. Carmelo spoke first stressing the urgency to act. Paul was next, listing off the names of unarmed victims of police shootings. Then came Wade, emphasizing that racial profiling had to stop. LeBron had the last word. Let's use this moment as a call to action for all professional athletes to educate ourselves, explore these issues, speak up, use our influence, and renounce all violence. And most importantly, Go back to our communities, invest our time, our resources, help rebuild them, help strengthen them, help change them. We all have to do better. Scott was awestruck. When I asked him what would have happened if he, Magic Johnson, James Worthy, and Michael Cooper had made a collective statement like that in the 80s, Scott explained the directive back then was to stick to basketball. You know, shut up and dribble. We wasn't the type of guys that were, uh, at that time, supposed to voice your opinion on things that were happening in society or in your community. So I think it would have been frowned upon, Jackie, to be honest with you, 30-something years ago, standing on the stage trying to tell people that, number one, everybody should be treated equally. And I, I think we probably would have got booed off the stage or, or, you know, just like they used to do at Apollo back in the day, start throwing stuff at you, you know, all that crazy stuff. Today's NBA stalwarts exist in a different environment, one that allows them to make a stand without concern for retaliation. It's a world in which players wear phrases like, I can't breathe, and say her name on the back of their jerseys, and stars move from team to team at their own discretion. It's a freedom that has been earned over many generations. These modern icons take on many forms. A baby-faced marksman who can shoot from half court. A Greek big man who glides to the basket like a guard. A reed-thin seven-foot shooting marvel who shattered the notion of a prototypical small forward, and a grizzled veteran from Akron, Ohio, who takes his talents wherever he likes and calls a sitting president, you bum, without flinching. I'm Jackie McMullen. From Spotify and The Ringer, this is the Icons Club the evolution of the NBA superstar. Episode 8, Modern Icons. When Sports Illustrated plastered LeBron James on its February 18, 2002 cover under the presumptuous headline, The Chosen One, he was just 17 years old. No pressure, right? After the magazine came out, young LeBron went out and had Chosen One tattooed onto his back. 20 years later, LeBron still rolls with the same swagger. He has won four championships with three different teams, four MVP awards, and appeared in the finals for eight consecutive years from 2011 to 2018. An unparalleled ledger of productivity. And like two of his idols before him, 
Kobe and Michael, he has created a diverse business portfolio that has made him the first U.S. athlete to earn a billion dollars while still playing. But his crowning achievement is how he raised player empowerment to an unparalleled level. By leveraging his influence, LeBron has wrestled away power from NBA owners and front office executives and manipulated rosters in Miami, Cleveland, and Los Angeles, triggering an unprecedented wave of superstar player movement. James Harden, Kevin Durant, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Anthony Davis, Kyrie Irving, and Russell Westbrook have all switched teams in the past four seasons, some more than once. Kevin Love, LeBron's former teammate, says James has completely changed the way the NBA conducts business. He almost allowed the guys within our league, uplifted them and gave them freedom to, you know, kind of pick where they wanted to go. LeBron's most audacious move was The Decision, a one-hour television special in 2010 to announce where he would land in free agency. It was, to summarize the words of former Commissioner David Stern, an ill-advised, poorly conceived, and badly executed spectacle. But it was must-see TV. People across the globe, sports fans or not, tuned in to watch. Incredibly, Cavs owner Dan Gilbert found out just about the same time we did that LeBron would not be returning to Cleveland when he declared, And this fall, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach and um, join the Miami Heat. The fallout of James teaming up with Wade and Chris Bosh on the Heat was instantaneous. Spurned Cleveland fans lit their LeBron jerseys on fire. Pundits condemned LeBron's self-importance. NBA legends like Jordan wondered aloud why LeBron would join forces with the very people he should be trying to beat on his own. Barkley called the decision stupid. And that was before the absurd welcome party in Miami, featuring giant plumes of smoke, a forklift to deliver the new threesome to the stage, and a trio of keys to the city. It was then that LeBron declared the Heat would win not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven. With that, LeBron secured his place as the NBA's resident villain. Twelve years later, Golden State Warriors coach Steve Kerr tips his cap to LeBron's courage and conviction in the face of vicious blowback. He changed the whole dynamic of, of uh, the relationship between players and ownership and, and management in the league. And I think he deserves great credit for that because that took a lot of guts. That took a lot of courage. He got crushed when he made that move. But the decision was great for business. Television ratings spiked. The internet exploded as reports about NBA trades and free agent signings became a bigger part of the news cycle. The NBA became part of the mainstream conversation, not just for hoop heads, but for casual fans too. All because of LeBron's power move. Millions tuned in just to root against LeBron. It was, says Wade, a watershed moment, but not for the reasons so many people thought. It was a lot of power in that in that moment, 2010. It shifted a lot, you know, it shifted a lot. And to be able, and I always say it, to be able to be three, you know, young black men and to be able to make a decision that was, you know, in a sense, some people look at it and say it was a selfish decision. I felt like it was selfless because, you know, we decided to not make it about just us individually. And this is a moment we was like, listen, all that individual stuff, it really does, it's not, it's not fulfilling. It's not getting us what we want out of this game. And what we want is to be champions. We want to win. We want to do all these cool things. We want to have moments and experiences with people we love. As Jordan pointed out, old school players didn't believe in pressuring GMs to sign certain players or in teaming up with other elite talent to ensure a title. Both Magic and Larry rejected the notion of playing together instead of engaging in the Celtics-Lakers rivalry as opponents. But they did not grow up in an era where blooming stars who were close friends competed together and against one another from the time they were small boys. I always laughed at the notion that you cannot compete as friends in the NBA. Like that is the silliest notion in the world because most guys are friends. You know, it's just, it's a competitiveness and you got to turn it off when you got on different jerseys. 
But as you see, guys can play together a year after they've had a, a scuffle on the court. You know, I, I just think, you know, you of course, we live in this world and I'm a part of it now in the media. We just blow things up and we make it, you know, bigger than it should. But I wanted to beat LeBron and Carmelo and Chris Paul more than anybody in the NBA. And I wanted to play well against them as well. But for Wade and LeBron, playing with each other proved to be rocky at first. In their first season, they muddled through the awkward dance of determining who should lead and who should defer. They still won 58 games and wrote a brilliant performance by LeBron over Chicago in the Eastern Conference Finals. But that was all quickly forgotten in the finals, when the heavily favored Heat, up 2-1 to one in the series, melted down against Dirk Nowitzki and the Dallas Mavericks. LeBron was glaringly passive in critical moments, particularly in Game 4. He stopped driving to the basket, seemed reluctant to shoot, hastily passing the ball elsewhere. LeBron was so unassertive and ineffective, my colleague Bill Simmons wondered aloud in his column, does he realize this game is being televised? The Mavs won the championship in six games. And the celebration will begin. The Dallas Mavericks are NBA champions. The first title in franchise history. LeBron's performance was so underwhelming, his own teammate, Eddie House, was still ripping him seven years later. He went on the Fox Sports show Undisputed in 2018 and claimed LeBron, quote, quit on the team and was MIA when it mattered. Then House dropped this hammer. He had a bad, he had a bad no, game. No, he had a bad series. Yeah. No, okay. a bad series. Jordan never had that. And there it is. The curse of Jordan. The measuring stick for all elite players who have followed him. The comparisons would haunt LeBron until he won his own ring. And still will. Until he wins six. Like Mike. When he was young, LeBron yearned to be just like Jordan. In a 2020 interview with Uninterrupted, a media company co-founded by LeBron, James recalls meeting MJ in Chicago when teenage LeBron was in town for an AAU tournament. He dropped by trainer Tim Grover's Hoops Gym, where Jordan trained. When he spotted Jordan bench pressing, he said, and I quote, the dude looked like Jesus Christ to me. While LeBron might have idolized his airness growing up, according to Jordan, there's been no meaningful interaction between the two. Now, they've always recognized each other's greatness, as evidenced by the warm greeting they shared during the 75th anniversary celebration in February's All-Star Game. But the interactions are surface level, not the kind of deep dive that Michael and Kobe shared. Even though MJ did extend the invitation, that has become a rite of passage among icons. You know, once again, I'm not going to communicate. I'm not going to invade your time. If you ever need anything, which is what I've always told him, if you ever need anything, there's my number, you can give me a call. And to his credit, he, he, he's never called. I mean, he may have called a couple of times, but nothing to the magnitude of Kobe. If he's going to call, you should call Magic Johnson in, in, in the sense that his style, his basketball talent is more Magic Johnson than Michael Jordan. Whereas Kobe, you know, his style of play was identical to mine. So it was, I can understand the dialogue. The selection of the 75th anniversary team has renewed debate on who is the best player ever. LeBron recently, during an interview with Kenny Smith on TNT, reiterated he believes he's number one. At that moment, I was like, I'm the greatest basketball player people have ever seen in all facets. Like, you know, I could play the one through five. I can guard one through five. Just like did something that's never been done in the history of the sport. I mean, teams that go down 3-1 was zero for like 32 in finals history. There was nobody ever coming out of that. Although new rankings conducted by ESPN and The Athletic gave Jordan the nod. Hall of Famers are split. Jordan's 6-0 finals record speaks volumes, but so does LeBron's longevity. He is the all-time leading playoff scorer and will, if he remains healthy, surpass Kareem as the most prolific scorer of all time. 
He recently became the first player in history to score more than 30,000 points, grab 10,000 rebounds, and dish out 10,000 assists. That is a mind-boggling accomplishment by any measure. Jordan insists he's not interested in pitting his career against LeBron's. You know, obviously, you know, based on the way that LeBron is being portrayed, it's a competition. No, it's not. I don't see it as a competition. I don't see it. He's doing a lot of things that I've done. I'm pretty sure based in, in the way that I've orchestrated my career, I've provided him with an opportunity to do the same things. And he's taking advantage of that. I leave it as that. I think he's an unbelievable man. I think he does a lot for the community socially. Uh, he has a bigger platform in terms of Instagram, Twitter, and blah, 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 to do all the necessary things that he, he chooses to do, and he does it. Following the devastating loss in the 2011 finals to Dallas, LeBron did actually pick up the phone. But channeling his inner Kobe, it was Akeem Olajuwon's number he dialed, not Jordan's. I mean, after Kobe, then, you know, the all of them start coming out, Dwight and uh, LeBron. And Kobe said that tone. If it's good enough for Kobe, that means they follow suit. LeBron's conversation with Akeem was succinct. He needed to expand his post game so he could use his size and strength to its maximum advantage. LeBron came on a mission. <laughs> he knows exactly what he was going after. One year later, LeBron returned to the NBA Finals, this time against Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, and the Oklahoma City Thunder. He led the Heat with a triple-double in the deciding Game 5 and cradled the Larry O'Brien trophy like it was his firstborn child. He won again with Miami the next season, in 2013, delivering 37 points and 12 rebounds in a Game 7 against Tim Duncan and the San Antonio Spurs. Just as Jordan did before him, LeBron responded definitively to the tired refrain of, will you ever win when it matters? But the king was restless. After losing in a rematch with the Spurs in the 2014 finals, LeBron sensed the Heat's championship window was closing. So he jumped before it shut. He orchestrated a triumphant return to Cleveland. No gaudy TV special this time, and declared, I'm home. He joined a talented, mercurial Kyrie Irving, and soon after he signed, the team acquired Kevin Love from Minnesota. The stretch forward, eager to gain insight into LeBron's thinking, asked endless questions on the long plane flights and bus rides. It became clear to Love that LeBron's drive was insatiable. As an athlete, as in life, you know, with, with somebody with his greatness, and I hope I don't butcher this, but like tomorrow's trials always concern him more than, you know, yesterday's triumphs. It's always the next thing. It's always like, you know, it's that masochistic instinct of, you know, dangling whatever it is, that carrot, if you will, like just outside of what you consider success. LeBron signed a series of contracts with the Cavs that gave him the ability to opt out if he didn't agree with the direction of the team or the personnel choices of the front office. In doing so, he left a franchise thirsty for a championship beholden to his wishes. It provided him with influence that not even Jordan enjoyed during his championship years with the Bulls. That the biggest difference between LeBron and MJ was LeBron's willingness to display a social conscience, loudly and boldly. When Clippers owner Donald Sterling's racist comments were captured on video in 2014, LeBron declared there was no place for him in the NBA and said he might have refused to play if he was on the Clippers. And when violence erupted across the country, he took to Twitter to call for gun control. LeBron created the I Promise School in Akron, Ohio, dedicated to students who, in the words of his foundation, are already falling behind and are in danger of falling through the cracks. Past stars appreciate and acknowledge his impact, says Isaiah Thomas. In this generation of player over the last, you know, 17, 18 years, he's by far been the most influential, impactful in terms of using his voice. And I applaud him. 
Even though the Warriors defeated his Cavaliers to win the 2017 championship, James came to Steph Curry's defense when President Donald Trump withdrew Golden State's invitation to the White House. LeBron's rebuke was stern and direct, referring to Trump as you bum, and saying that going to the White House was, quote, a great honor until you showed up. In his retort, Trump declared, I like Mike. But Jordan threw his support behind LeBron. I support LJ, Jordan responded via NBC News. He's doing an amazing job for his community. Love speaks from personal experience on how LeBron uses his voice to make a difference. James was a vocal supporter of Love when he publicly shared his mental health struggles. The rest of the league has taken notice as well. I think it's allowed other players to step into that role and say, hey, listen, we we have the ability as a league and as this game uh, and sport continues to grow and evolve that we can press send on one PSA or one tweet or post and tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people will see it and tens of millions of, of kids, the next generation will see it. But I also do believe that responsibility, you know, one slip up, especially in today's world, we want to make it a big problem. or We want to, you know, make it something that's going to continue with, you know, storylines. LeBron's moment came in 2019. Just as Jordan was criticized for his infamous Republicans wear sneakers too comment, LeBron came under fire for criticizing former Rockets general manager Daryl Morey after he tweeted, Fight for freedom. Stand with Hong Kong. An obvious swipe at China's treatment of Hong Kong citizens protesting oppressive legislation. LeBron, who has major business interests in China, retorted that Maury, quote, wasn't educated on the subject, and then went on to say, so many people could have been harmed, not only physically or financially, but emotionally and spiritually. And his freedom... Formerly, Enes Kanter, an NBA big man from Turkey, rekindled the controversy in November. Freedom tweeted, Money over morals for the king. Sad and disgusting how these athletes pretend they care about social justice. They really do shut up and dribble when the big boss says so, adding an emoji of China's flag. For his part, LeBron, who declined to participate in this podcast, did respond at a news conference. Here's what he said. Let me clear up the confusion. I do not believe there was any consideration for the consequences and ramifications of the tweet. I'm not discussing the substance. Others can talk about that. Freedom says he's focused on LeBron because of his prominent place in today's game. But he rattles off others he feels are just as hypocritical, citing Curry, Clay Thompson, Chris Paul, Durant, and Jordan. You know, whenever I talk about LeBron and Michael, and some people can think that I'm racist because I'm only attacking, you know, black athletes, which is wrong. I'm going to get to the other athletes too. But what people don't know is other black athletes around the league are the one reaching out to me and said, call out this player, call out that player. They are the one that give me talking points. The modern superstar has a voice that resonates inside and outside of the sports world. With social media, athletes can bypass traditional outlets and take control of their own narrative, blasting out messages to millions. But with great power comes great responsibility. With a single tweet, LeBron can drive momentum behind a movement like Black Lives Matter. But he can just as easily encourage, consciously or not, vaccine hesitancy. A criticism fellow icon Kareem Abdul-Jabbar leveled against James after he posted a meme about COVID-19. The original icons struggled to be heard. Today's icons have the opposite problem. They have to navigate the intense scrutiny over everything they say and do. And that scrutiny doesn't just come from outside the NBA. Despite the significant influence of modern icons, Not all NBA players agree with the scope of their goals. Players like Freedom, a journeyman without anything approaching the platform of the league's stars, argue that the league's human rights advocacy is too inwardly focused. 
victims of human rights violations across the world could benefit from the attention of NBA stars in countries like China, Russia, and Turkey. When Black Lives Matter was happening, Adam was the one and said, we are encouraging our players to stand up for what's right. But he never said, or oh, only in America, you know? So that's why I was like, listen, this is my right. This is what literally Adam told me to do, to stand up for what I believe in. And this is what I believe in. And what I believe in is to help people. It's not like I'm doing politics. It's not like I'm saying, oh, hey, guys, vote for Republican Party. Oh, hey, guys, vote for Democrat Party. No. I'm saying let's stand up for innocent people. Let's start calling out these fake hypocrite companies that are making billions of dollars on these athletes that which are not educated now. So, like, I don't do politics. I do human rights. There's a big difference. Love contends that LeBron learned long ago how to block out criticism. He has surrounded himself with longtime confidants whom he trusts to counsel and protect him. His longevity, Love believes, is based on a singular pursuit of greatness that has not waned in nearly two grueling decades in the NBA. And there is no end game in sight. I don't know if it's chasing ghosts. I don't know if it's chasing Kobe or Jordan or, you know, Kareem uh, with, with the scoring, passing Carl Malone. It's like all of these different things that, you know, he just has so much more to continue to prove within his life and, and, and in his career. But I think there's a lot on his plate, and I don't think that it's ever lost on him how big the moment is. Steph Curry grew up dreaming of his own big moments. His father, Del Curry, was a respected NBA veteran, and Steph, self-described rug rat, grew up hanging around NBA locker rooms. Like most players his age, he marveled at Jordan's greatness and fantasized about taking off from the foul line for a dunk. But then reality sunk in. At six foot two and 185 pounds, he was built more like the kid next door than the next great NBA icon. We try all the double clutch moves and stick your tongue out and post moves and all that. Um, but I knew watching you know guys like Reggie Miller and Steve Nash um, were a little bit in my, more in my lane in terms of how I could actually play. And Reggie, his footwork and his get it done mentality. Nothing about his game is, is pretty. It was just like, I'm getting the results done. I'm, I'm knocking these shots down. Like you would never teach anybody Reggie's form, but you would teach him that clutchness type of vibe. And Steve is the exact same way, like testing the limits on what you know, was possible from a point guard in terms of balance and scoring and, and distributing and the creativity of passing and, and not being the most athletic guy, but still being effective and being an MVP twice. So those are my guys. Curry was draining 30-footers at mid-major Davidson College when LeBron, three years older and already in the NBA, dropped by for a look. He huddled with the young college star after the game. I started kind of chop it up with him. He gave me a lot of good knowledge on the level of expectations that I should set for myself and, and the way to kind of keep tunnel vision on just getting better no matter what the situation around me was and maintaining control on what I could control. No one was calling Curry the chosen one when he was drafted with the seventh pick in 2009. He could shoot, but really, that can only take you so far, right? Think again. Curry revolutionized the game with his long-range prowess. Normally, defensive players picked up shooters just outside the three-point line. No longer. Curry needed to be checked starting at center court. His quick release and the innate understanding of how to maximize the pick and pop not only earned him dazzling style points, it also opened up the court for his teammates. He could hit trays away from the ball, or using screens, or by simply twisting defenders into a pretzel with his artful ball handling skills. Suddenly, every team wanted dead-eye shooters who could space the court and fill the seats. Steve Kerr, who still holds the record for career three-point percentage, and has coached Curry to three championships, says because of Steph, the Icons Club needs to open a new wing in its hallowed membership. Well, he broke the mold. This club was supposed to belong to 
at first the behemoths, you know, and then the freaks of nature. And all of a sudden, here's this guy who's, you know, 6'3", 185 pounds, who is doing things that nobody else has ever done before. It took some time to get there. Curry made his Madison Square Garden debut as a rookie in November 2009. He was excited to test his wares in the hallowed basketball mecca, but coach Don Nelson played him only two minutes and 35 seconds. When asked about his limited time, he admitted it sucked, but expressed optimism he'd have another chance to impress the discerning New York City fans. Four years later, on February 27, 2013, the garden served as his official coming out part. He started slowly, only four points in the first quarter. But then he discovered his shooting rhythm. He hit a three, then another, then another. I started to move a little further back from the three-point line, finding different ways to get my shot off. Contested a two-on-one back the other way. Curry, why not for three? Bingo! Jamal Shumpert, Raymond Felton, Pablo Prigioni, Jason Kidd was on the bench doing all these facial reactions to every shot I made. The Warriors ended up losing the game, but nobody seemed to care. They were all fixated on Dell's kid, who had just dropped 54 points on the Knicks. Curry connected on 11 of his 13 three-point shots, and a parade of legends, Kidd, Walt Frazier, Carmelo Anthony, lined up afterward to applaud his performance. So it didn't end the way that I wanted to, but it was anytime you do something in, you know, special in, in Madison Square Garden, it takes a different life of its own. And it was weird. I got home in the hotel and I'm like watching Sports Center, and all they're talking about is how many points to score. And I'm like, I'm pissed off because we lost. Icons often point to a particular moment when they are welcomed into the inner circle, like Jordan's 63 points against the Celtics or Shaq's finals domination in 2000. I asked Curry, was Madison Square Garden the night he was welcomed into the club? Talent and opportunity is one thing, but confidence is a whole nother thing. And that for me was the unlock on just supreme confidence that when I show up on a court and I know what I'm doing, like nobody can stop me. That's the first time I actually believed it. Curry sensed he had earned a new rarefied status. A year later, when he played the Lakers, he drove to the basket, pivoted, and knocked in a shot off the glass. The broadcasters zoomed in on Kobe, who turned to a teammate on the bench and said, in words I probably shouldn't repeat verbatim, that Steph was very good at basketball. Sometime after that, Kobe told reporters that Curry had a killer instinct. He later sat down with Curry, and the two traded stories about their humble beginnings as rookies. Curry went on to win back-to-back MVPs in 2015 and 16. His life hasn't been the same. There's a different glow about you <laughs> from fan perspective, from your, your peers, um, other vets. And I'm not saying it was all it was all glossy because I from that point on, then you're open to criticism of games as you don't play well, too. So it's, you got to have that give and take and that perspective about it. But there's definitely like a new respect for people that have those moments and they're loud and you gain that respect from everybody in the basketball world whose opinion matters in a sense. And that means something. Curry's incredible success story prompted kids from all over the world to dribble up, step over half court, and let it fly. This superstar looked like them. He wasn't tall, he wasn't ripped, but he could shoot with volume. Michael Thompson, father of Clay Thompson, the other half of the famed Warriors Splash Brothers backcourt, says Curry's shooting opened the floodgates. When you look at Reggie Miller's career, I think he shot maybe four threes a game. I believe that's what these average were. Now guys shoot that in the quarter before the quarter's over because the game has changed so much and the game went from finding the next Hakeem Olajuwon or finding the next Shaq to finding the next Steph and Clay and Bradley Beal and Damian Lillard, guys who can knock down consistent shots from 30 to 35 feet with ease. The season before the baby-faced Curry joined the league, the New York Knicks, with Maverick Mike D'Antoni as head coach, averaged nearly 28 three-point attempts a game. 
a number that was viewed as unusually voluminous. In this current NBA season, the Minnesota Timberwolves lead the league with over 41 three-point attempts a game. And nobody blinks. Curry averaged 12.7 three-point attempts a game on his own last season. Everyone shoots threes now, including big men Nikola Jokic, Carl Anthony Towns, and Joel Embiid, with impressive accuracy. You can thank Steph Curry for that. Unlike Michael or Kobe, who challenged and occasionally fought their teammates, Curry motivates his fellow warriors by encouraging them to embrace the joys of the game. He has become a trusted mentor to young Jordan Poole, who daily auditions to become an honorary Splash Brother with the urging and support of both Thompson and Curry. Kerr sees and appreciates Curry's generous approach more than most. He's become one of the key faces of the league, but he's done so in such a unique fashion, you know, just through this sort of magnanimous nature, you know, he really connects with people all over the the world in a really unique way. While LeBron and Curry may have preferred to appreciate each other's contrasting styles from afar, the basketball gods had other ideas. They would meet four times in the finals from 2015 to 2018, and three of those championships were won by the Warriors. By then, LeBron was done dispensing friendly advice to the kid from Davidson. Curry was messing with his turf, and he was all business. He gave me some stuff that really helped early on, and then to your point, from there, you end up playing against each other and four straight finals, and you're trying to go after the same thing. So the dynamics change a little bit. A common birthplace was about the only similarity LeBron and Steph Curry shared. The Akron that LeBron lived in was far different than Curry's upbringing. James grew up in poverty. He moved 12 times before he was eight years old. Basketball, he has often said, saved him. Steph grew up in a wealthy environment, hanging around professional basketball players, quietly learning the trade firsthand. LeBron has changed teams three times, including two stints in Cleveland. Curry has remained in Golden State since the day he was drafted. Their parallel careers, says Love, has made their rivalry all that more riveting. You have arguably the greatest player ever and the greatest shooter of all time going against each other in these epic matchups. So... That dynamic was, I thought, a pretty, pretty special one because people looked up to them, yeah, because they both can put the ball in the hoop and do spectacular things with the basketball, but they both do it in such different ways. So while there are so many similarities, I think there's beauty in the, the, the differences as well. And I think I saw that with both of those guys and how they operate and how they just draw respect from their teammates and make their teammates better. In 2015, the undermanned Cavs, playing without the injured Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving, were no match for Curry, the league MVP, and the Warriors. LeBron became the first player in finals history to lead both teams in points, assists, and rebounds. But it wasn't enough. The next year, the Warriors staked themselves a 3-1 lead in the finals against Cleveland. But Draymond Green's shot to LeBron's groin in Game 4 left him suspended for Game 5. It changed the course of the series. In Game 6, Curry drove to the basket late in the game, and LeBron swatted it away. Curry blocked by James! Then turned and delivered some in-your-face smack talk. The Cavs clinched their first ever title when LeBron chased down Andre Iguodala in the waning minutes of Game 7 on a fast-break block that just might be the greatest defensive play in finals history. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James with the rejection. Wow. It was a stunning comeback, one that LeBron had forecasted to his teammates when they were down 3-1 to one and crossing over the bridge from Oakland back to where the team was staying in San Francisco. It had to be so because LeBron had told the people of Ohio he would make it happen. He had made a promise to come back and to win a title. So in itself, he had put, already put so much pressure on him, on his team around him, and on you know our organization to you know put them at the top. And that in itself, I think him showing up every day, there's so much on him 
every single day. And for him to handle it the way that he does is incredibly impressive and also a testament to those around him. The rivalry between Cleveland and Golden State was shaping up to be fairly compelling. But in the summer of 2016, the dynamic changed dramatically. Kevin Durant, one of the most coveted talents in the league, joined Steph and the Warriors as a free agent, drawn to Golden State's free-flowing style, predicated on sharing the basketball. Durant's move was player empowerment at its finest. Only this time, LeBron was on the wrong end of it. Durant was a marvel, a seven-foot-tall small forward who could handle the ball like a guard, drop threes with ease, and exploit small defenders with a gorgeous pull-up jumper or an elegant drive to the hoop. When asked, he could also punish teams in the post, although that was never really his preference. I've always been that skinny, so it wasn't that easy to just throw me on the block and, you know, make me mean and I'll be effective, you know. So I tried that other ways. You know, I was fastening usually guys that were guarding me, so I tried to outrun them up and down the floor. I made that a part of my game. I enjoyed shooting the basketball. That was fun to me, so I tried to, to get good at knocking down shots and I always admire point guards and what they brought to the game, so I wanted to be able to dribble as well. So um, I just I didn't, I didn't want to be restricted on the court. And that was just my whole thought process. Durant was a student of the game. He watched film of Magic, picked Bird's brain, and called Jordan from time to time. You've seen so many superstars come through the league, and you're like, all right, who do I want to be? And you see how they've done things. You take bits and pieces and form who you are for yourself. Durant also admired Kobe's dedication and was mesmerized by his competitiveness. During their downtime at the 2012 Olympics, where both suited up for Team USA, they rehashed their NBA clashes. But Kobe, of course, enjoyed the last word, five rings. On those flights and on those bus rides, me, I was just like, you know, every time we play the Lakers, I want to kill Kobe and the Lakers. So he was building up that competitive fire, but he was just a naturally competitive person. He loved the game so much that that's all he wanted to talk about was, you know, our battles together. And that community meant something to him, and, and that spoke volumes to me. Durant's free agency in the summer of 2016 was nearly as highly anticipated as LeBron's in 2010. The addition of a recent MVP winner in his late 20s to any roster would immediately shift the power in the league. He also raised eyebrows by signing a contract that enabled him to opt out after two years, a nod to LeBron's MO. Yet, when asked about his influences, Katie points to the legends of the past, like Spencer Haywood. I think more than anything, Spencer Haywood, um, Oscar Robinson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar helped change player empowerment, free agency more than we have. Those guys took control and actually went into the courts to fight for their freedom as professional athletes. And that started it more so than anything. We just happened to be more popular and there's more of a platform than it was back then. So people were looking at us every second of the day. So of course it's gonna seem bigger, but what those guys did back then were more was way more impactful than what we did, you know? So it was, I never attributed that to LeBron or myself. With the arrival of Durant, Golden State had their own big four. Durant, Curry, Clay, and Draymond. In the 2017 finals, they beat the Cavs in five games. They went 16-1 and during that postseason, and Durant was named finals MVP. It was more of the same in 2018, when Golden State swept Cleveland despite a 51-point effort from LeBron in Game 1. Durant was, again, otherworldly, securing his second Finals MVP after averaging nearly 29 points, 11 rebounds, and 7.5 assists. Kerr, his coach at the time, said Durant was everything you wanted in an icon. Focused, unselfish, sublime. I think uh, the, the guys who are charter members of that club, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, they're in awe of Kevin because personally, I think Kevin is the most gifted one of them all. LeBron had seen enough. He left Cleveland as a free agent in 2018 and signed with the Lakers. He then put the full court press on blossoming young big man, Anthony Davis, a fellow client of Clutch Sports 
headlined by Agent Rich Paul, LeBron's childhood friend, to force his way out of New Orleans to join him. Overnight, the Lakers were back in the mix. It would seem that Golden State was set up to cruise along indefinitely as a dynasty. Except Durant had other ideas. In the summer of 2019, shortly after a devastating Achilles injury knocked him out of the NBA Finals, Durant walked away from Steph and Golden State, choosing instead to join friends Kyrie Irving and DeAndre Jordan in Brooklyn. In a 2019 story I wrote for ESPN, DeAndre told me the trio discussed joining forces as far back as the 2016 Olympics in Rio. He said the conversation centered on how LeBron had orchestrated the Miami Friend Group in 2010, and that Kyrie clinked glasses with Durant and Jordan, and then said, let's all get on the same team and play together. There are plenty of theories on why Durant moved on from the Warriors. Perhaps it was the impossibility of matching Steph's popularity in Golden State, or the friction between him and Draymond Green that spilled over in that final season. Or, perhaps, Durant is a modern icon who simply likes the ability to enjoy new basketball experiences. In the end, I just thought Kevin was ready for a different challenge and wanted to do something new. But he, he was very different from Steph in that he was the guy who young kids and, you know, the average basketball fan couldn't really connect with because who's 6'11 with that kind of skill and, and power? There was a, a little bit of a sense of that, like, you know, the Bay is kind of, you know, the Steph's town, you know, and Kevin comes in and and he couldn't quite connect with the fans to the level that Steph could or, or even Clay, just because they were both, you know, homegrown guys and all that. Curry says the scrutiny that Durant and the Warriors were under in his final season was unrelenting and it affected everyone. The last year was difficult because it was the rebirth of more drama from the outside perspective of what is K going to do in the free agency and how is that going to affect us and all the decisions of the future. Curry insists he harbors no animosity towards Durant. Others haven't been so kind, particularly on social media. The NBA's old guard has weighed in on stars like KD changing teams too. Olajuwon, who spent his entire career with the Houston Rockets, says in his era, there was great pride in sticking with the franchise that drafted you. The concept before was, if you have a franchise player, then you have opportunity to build a championship team, to build around. So I don't see where before, where if you are Walmart and you want to go to Home Depot, to be side of Home Depot, to be successful. No, you're Walmart, you know? So that was, that was the concept. Rick Barry is more blunt. It boggles his mind why anyone would walk away from a franchise that was a championship contender every season. That's what you're supposed to be playing for in team sports, isn't it? Win titles? I mean, that's why I don't understand some of the moves that some of these guys have made when they're on these amazing situations, you know, you know, Shaq and Kobe breaking up. I mean, K- KD to leaving the Warriors. I mean, I give up part of my salary to have played in that Warriors team. My God. Durant hears the noise, but he doesn't understand the vitriol surrounding his decisions, which were done within the confines of NBA regulations. He didn't force a trade, as James Harden, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and Anthony Davis did, he fulfilled his contract. That's why he objects to the criticism. People going to look at it as, you know, you, how many teams you switched, Katie? Three of them? Well, oh, look at I MJ. See. Okay, so yeah. it's personal for you. It's I way, you. of I course. You. It's just the facts. That's what it is. I want to say it's personal. It's just the facts. But um, a Magic Bird stayed with one team, and so you can kind of, you know, but guys were moving, winning championships with different teams that they weren't drafted by, you know, or chasing championships uh, for that matter. So it's always been in our league. I mean, always. The Milwaukee Bucks appeared to be on the clock. Their young star, Giannis Antetokounmpo, was improving by leaps and bounds but the team repeatedly underachieved in the postseason. 
Speculation ran rampant that the Bucks needed to win. Soon, or else Giannis would bolt from the club that plucked him out of virtual obscurity with the 15th pick of the 2013 draft. Giannis, if you've surely heard by now, was a scrawny kid playing in the Greek third division. But he had raw talent, patrolling the paint like a center and exhibiting the ball-handling skills of a guard. He had great court vision and showed a knack for delivering the ball exactly in the right spot. His shot was a work in progress, as were his free throws. But each season, he came back a little stronger, a little more polished, a little more aware of how to impact games. No wonder teams like Toronto and Miami monitored his contract situation closely and quietly cleared cap space. If Giannis ever went on the open market, he would make any team that snagged him an instant contender, much like LeBron in 2010 and 2014 and 2018. But in a massive victory for small market teams, after the Bucks paid a steep price to acquire Drew Holiday, Giannis bucked the doubters and signed his extension with Milwaukee in December 2020, before the team had won anything. Seven months later, he led Milwaukee to its first championship since Kareem and Oscar Robertson wore the uniform in 1971. At the age of 27, Giannis is a two-time MVP, a champion, and one of the most respected young players in the game. He is, if you will, an icon under construction. He has already established himself as a winner and a clutch performer. Will he follow Curry's lead and remain with the Bucks for his entire career? Or will he, like LeBron, venture out to change the fortunes of an additional franchise? His complete story has yet to be written. What we do know is that Giannis has already established himself as a superb leader and a trusted and beloved teammate. Although Antetokounmpo was born in Greece, he quickly grasped the nuances of the plight of the Black athlete in America. And during a critical moment in the Black Lives Matter movement, he stood tall in support of his teammates. It was August 2020, and Jacob Blake, an unarmed Black man, was shot seven times in the back by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, while his children looked on. Bucks guard George Hill was so distraught, he questioned aloud whether the NBA should be playing. His teammate Sterling Brown threw his support behind Hill and called a team meeting to announce the two of them would not be suiting up for Game 5 of their first-round playoff matchup against the Magic. The first to throw his full support behind the boycott was Giannis. He declared to Hill and Brown, I stand with you. Just as Russell had done decades before him, Giannis immediately activated and energized his teammates around a common cause. Within minutes, the team decided not to take the court. Giannis's proactive stance, says Brown, was the turning point. Ain't no telling, you know, who would have opted out, you know, if Giannis didn't stand up. But at the end of the day, I know Giannis, he a, he a real down-to-earth guy. You know, he got family, he got kids now. And he, he felt the situation, you know, um, I mean, we human, we feel things. For Giannis, it was something where he got, you know, his brother, his little brother Alex at the time. You know, he was in high school, you know, around Milwaukee, and he felt like it could have been him. Within hours of the decision by the Bucks, made without any conversation with team ownership or Commissioner Adam Silver, the remaining scheduled games were also postponed. It was a remarkable demonstration of collective protest. The players, who are already competing in jerseys emblazoned with messages that supported the Black Lives Matter movement in the wake of protests over the death of George Floyd, exercised their power in a manner that had never been witnessed in American professional sports. We turned a lot of heads, you know, we, we made a lot of noise and we put a lot of people on notice. A lot of people who thought, you know, um, our job was to just shut up and dribble, you know, it's not. We have a platform, we got to use it to our advantage, and that's what we did at that moment. For Giannis, it was a moment that cemented his relationship with his teammates in a way, says Brown, that will never be forgotten. While the freedom to express their opinions has been applauded, 
there is data that suggests the NBA's social activism has, among other factors, contributed to lower TV ratings. Many people in our country prefer that athletes stick to playing and leave politics out of it. The players remain unbowed. Curry, whose team missed the playoffs and was not competing in the bubble, recalls watching from afar and being impressed by the poise Giannis displayed during such a chaotic time. To his credit, you don't know if you have it until it's called upon. Like, that's when it's authentic. There's nothing calculated about, I'm going to do this because I know it's going to lead to this. It's like you have a feeling, you have something you stand for, a value, and you act on it, and then you deal with the consequences later. Anybody can uh, appreciate and respect and applaud, you know, that effort. And I think what came out of that is actually pretty insane. They got the beginning, the seeds planted for NBA arenas to open up to voting places. So, like, there was a, a tangible outcome of that and a major investment from the league, and that's meaningful. If he didn't do that, who knows if that, you know, comes about. We all know there's a lot of work to be done, but that was that was pretty special. Like icons before them, today's stars develop a grudging respect for those who are vying for the same trophy. Think of Larry finally acknowledging Magic's greatness in 1987. Just last week, LeBron tipped his cap to Curry during an episode of The Shop, LeBron's talk show. He identified Steph, his longtime rival, as the current player he'd most like to play with someday. When he get out of his car, you better guard him right from the moment he pulls up to the arena. As soon as he get out of his car, you better oh, guard him. Oh, sorry, guard him. Yeah, better guard him. You might want to get. You might want to guard him when he get out of the bed. I can't imagine Larry and Magic ever fantasizing about playing together, but the rules of the club have changed drastically. That's true on and off the court. Today's icons don't need permission to affect change; they just do it. Their sway is markedly different from the OGs of the icons club. Russell and Wilt, who played with heavy hearts the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, even though both men would have preferred to skip the game. And yet, the threat of empowerment leads all the way back to players like Russell, who some 50 years later continues to offer counsel to today's young superstars. We started this series trying to reveal some of the unspoken bonds that exist among the players who have been the face of the NBA. Some of those connections are built around on-court experiences. Think of Kobe asking MJ for tips, or the Dream Teeners comparing notes about high-pressure moments. But it also shows up in moments like Milwaukee's bubble boycott, the seeds of which harken back to Russell and Wilt. Only a handful of players can really understand those moments and what it means that Giannis and the Bucks were able to act on their own. It means that today's icons can rise above the league and take control of their own narratives, of their own legacies. Today's players continue to build their own personal empires. LeBron, Steph, and KD have each launched their own media companies, something Russell could only dream about. LeBron's company, Spring Hill Entertainment, named after the apartment complex where he grew up in Akron, was recently valued at $725 million. This wealth and independence means today's stars are uniquely positioned to honor and provide for those who paved the way. Chris Paul told me it's critical for today's stars to pay respect to the sacrifices they made. To that end, as president of the Players Union, he pushed to create a free healthcare program for past NBA players, paid for by today's players. Included in that care is a free screening program that quite possibly saved the lives of legends Tiny Archibald and Harvey Ketchings, both who discovered serious heart issues that required transplants. Paul says the healthcare initiative is the most significant accomplishment of his career. Some players that I might not even know that had played in the league, they would just come up and stop me during warm-ups and be like, hey man, I just want to say thank you. I just want to say thank you for the insurance. 
As some of today's icons near retirement, they have set their sights on staying involved with the league. And I don't mean as coaches or GMs. Only a half century ago, Bill Russell made headlines by becoming the league's first black coach. Today's players are aiming higher. They want to be team owners. Michael Jordan remains the sole black majority owner in the league. Magic sold his minority interest in the Lakers, and Shaq sold his stake in Sacramento, leaving Dwayne Wade with the Utah Jazz and Grant Hill with the Atlanta Hawks as the only other ex-players involved in minority ownership. Wade says it's critical to improve representation among the ownership ranks. We need more diverse voices. We need more people that sit at the tables to, that makes a decision that look like the players on the court as well and the fans in the stands as well. While LeBron, as a current player, is prohibited from having ownership in an NBA franchise, he has already expressed interest in doing just that. He's also already bought ownership stakes in the Boston Red Sox and the Liverpool Soccer Club. So is that what's next for the modern icon? Is it establishing diverse ownership? Having other icons join MJ in the league's inner circle? Or maybe it's more international players at the forefront of the league. Could it be even higher salaries for the players and values for franchises in the billions? Growth that seems to have no ceiling? And is there a young player out there who could actually sell more shoes than Jordan someday? The question that lingers for me isn't what's next, it's who's next. Who has the game, the off-court resume, and the popularity to be the next great NBA icon? Who will replace LeBron, Steph, and KD? For me, the Icons Club embodies the NBA's history. It's part of its DNA. And if history is any guide, someone is going to emerge whether it's Giannis, Luka, Jokic, Embiid, or the newest and perhaps most electric applicant to the club, Ja Morant. Are they willing to continue this brotherhood of shared knowledge and shared experiences that only a member of the club could possibly understand? The continued growth of the league depends on it. Like Charles Barkley said, there can be many icons, but only a select few reside on the top floor. So who's it gonna be? I know one thing, I can't wait to find out. This is the Icons Club, the evolution of the NBA superstar. I wrote and reported this podcast. The show is executive produced by Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy and Juliet Littman. Our producers are Bobby Wagner, Noah Malale, Jonathan Kerma, Isaac Lee, and Vikram Patel. Sound design and engineering by Scott Somerville. The theme music was composed by Devin Ronaldo. The rest of the music in this series is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Jack McCluskey and fact checking by Kellen B. Coates. Art direction and illustration by David Schumann. Thanks for listening.